Hello, I'm Mercedes. And I'm Tash, and you're listening to episode 108 of Chat Disney. to another episode of the Chat Disney podcast. This week, Mercedes and I are continuing on our journey, our time travel throughout the Disney decades. And this week, we are going to be heading into Mercedes' favourite and my second favourite decade, the 80s. Very excited to get into this. We will be concluding the episode with a very special segment of Mad Chatter, where we will be talking all about the new UK Disney cruise. But before we get into all of that, as always, let's have a little look at what has been happening in the world of Disney this week. So very exciting Epcot Food and Wine 2021 has been announced and it's going to be starting from July. So this is a few months ahead of time. Normally Food and Wine takes place in October. July gives us a little bit more time to enjoy the food and wine. I'm a huge Food and Wine fan. So for me, this is music to my ears. And also another really exciting bit of news that's come out of this week is that Disney is pushing a bit of a green eco message And there's not going to be any plastic cutlery in the parks, which is really awesome. This is obviously going to be piloting in Walt Disney World and then slowly rolled out across the other parks as and when they reopen. I'm so excited about this whole thing. Like I was reading about this earlier this week and there's a whole push for more eco-friendly products in all the parks. And I know that they're selling a set of bamboo reusable utensils as well, which come in their own little holder that has engraved with like the Disney park, whatever Disney park it is. So super exciting that they're putting more into that. Heading over to Disneyland for some news today. And the Blue Bayou restaurant has added alcoholic beverages to its menu. Hallelujah for those of you who like a drink when you go to the parks. There is now another location where you can sit back, relax and have a glass of wine or a beer at the end of a very long and tiring day. Yeah, very, very good. And a much needed change, I think, for all the parents out there. Moving into a galaxy far, far away with a little bit of Star Wars news. Very, very exciting. We finally had confirmation of the full cast announced for the new Obi-Wan series. And we already told you here on the Chat Disney podcast that we speculated that the series would include the likes of Ewan McGregor, Hayden Christensen, also Indira Varma from the Game of Thrones series. And all of those characters or those actors, I should say, have been confirmed and so much more. I was super excited when I saw this. I sent it to Tash as soon as it launched and Tash's response was do you think I care about this? So make of that what you will. And that's not the only exciting thing that's happened this week for Ewan McGregor. He has celebrated, and I can't quite believe this, his 50th birthday this week. I'm a huge Ewan McGregor fan, not just in Star Wars, but in lots of his different works. And I can't believe he's 50, but a very happy birthday to Ewan when you first said that he was 50 as well I was like oh I can't believe that either but actually when I think that I'm 30 that's probably <laughs> 60 so happy birthday Ewan McGregor 
Having a little look at Tokyo Disneyland this week and very excitingly, live entertainment has returned. They have started a brand new show called Mickey's Magical Music World. There we go, quite a mouthful for you. I think this is a very positive sign and hopefully paves the way for live entertainment and new shows to keep coming back to the other parks as well. Oh, I really hope so. And speaking of events in other parks, to wrap up this week's news, a little bit of exciting slash sad news for Disneyland Paris. They are celebrating their 29th birthday this month. And because Disneyland Paris is, of course, still closed, the way that they're going to be celebrating is with a virtual event that's going to take place on the 12th of April. All I know about the event, just from reading online, is that they're going to be talking a little bit about how they're continuing to work with the Disney Imagineers club is that what they're called volunteers it's something ears basically the influencers that disneyland paris collaborate with and yeah you can find out more if you go on instagram twitter or any of the other disneyland paris social accounts and that is pretty much everything that has been happening in the world of disney this week we're now going to head into my favorite era the 1980s The 1980s, Mercedes, obviously, this is your favorite era. It's also an era that I love very, very much. I'm a huge fan of 80s music. It's one of the only genres of music that I listen to. My music library isn't very diverse and big. Mercedes, what is it you love so much about the 80s? And what do you think of when you think of the 80s? For me, to sort of summarize the 80s, it's bright neon, it's leg warmers, it's big hair, it's fluorescent makeup, it's workout fitness videos in lycra and thongs. It's just chaos. And I love that. And the thing that I love the most about the 80s, you mentioned music. For me, it's very much film. My favorite movie of all time shock horror it's not a disney one it's actually back to the future which obviously is is you know an 80s iconic classic movie i love things like the breakfast club pretty and pink all of those kind of films gremlins i just yeah for me i think the cinema that came from the 80s is the reason that i love it so much definitely and i think as we will discover as we go through this year by year the 80s was very much a big time for finding new technologies and things like VHS and video gaming and all this stuff that we'll talk about as we kind of go through the 1980s on our little magical time traveling journey. So Mercedes, why don't you kick us off with 1980? So 1980, the year itself that started this awesome decade. Well, we've spoken a little bit in previous episodes about re-releases, and this really continued as we move into the 1980s. So in the year 1980, Lady and the Tramp, Mary Poppins, Song of the South, and the Aristocats were all re-released for audiences in cinema. Little bit shocked to see Song of the South in that lineup, to be honest with you, because obviously at this point in the 1980s, we were more progressive as a society. So the fact that this movie was still kind of deemed acceptable then is quite shocking to me. And we'll obviously talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, as we delve into the future in more detail. But yeah, great to see that these classics were being shown to more contemporary audiences. 
Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I noticed when doing research for this is how many movies were re-released throughout the 80s. There was obviously a big push to get them to new audiences. And I guess cinema became, you know, an even more accessible thing throughout the 1980s. It's by the 90s. It was just a normal hobby that you would go and do. And I guess that started in, in the 80s. In terms of new film releases, we had Herbie Goes Bananas, which I've actually never heard of as part of the Herbie franchise. But there we go. Herbie Goes Bananas was released on June the 25th. And in terms of new releases, that was really all we saw in 1980. Yeah, I'm just Googling Herbie Goes Bananas. I, I want to know what it is that drives Herbie to go bananas. I've also never seen this movie. So the plot is that it's sometime after Herbie goes to Monte Carlo and the protagonist has inherited Herbie from his uncle. They go somewhere, blah, 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 blah. There's a trio of villains, blah, 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 blah. Herbie tries to hide from the men at a bullfight. Herbie sees the men loading a disc onto a plane. So Herbie throws bananas at them before chasing the plane and biting its tail off. There we go. I knew that the title would be that literal, that he actually throws bananas. Yeah, I thought that like it was like a metaphor, not a metaphor, like a turn of phrase, like... Throwing bananas, yeah. Yeah. Exactly what what you mean. But maybe the reason that they didn't have many new releases in the year 1980 is because this is the year that Disney started releasing movies onto VHS. And the first day that they did this was March the 4th. Some of the first Disney movies to make it onto VHS included Pete's Dragon, Escape to Witch Mountain, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So some real classics that we've spoken about from the 60s and 70s periods when we've been doing this uh, little journey through the times. And these VHSs were initially not really available for wide release. You could only really get them from video rental stores. But how exciting. This is something that we take for granted completely now, I mean, now, you know, we just go on the internet and we've got pretty much any film we can imagine at our fingertops. When Mercedes and I were younger, growing up in the 90s, we had VHSs. And even now you think back to that, and that was, you know, a bit of a pain in the bum sometimes if someone hadn't rewound it properly or you wanted to go back, you'd have to rewind it manually. But imagine, you know, before this, you've had to go to the cinema to see your films and now you can literally get it from the store and watch it at home. Yeah, that is such a big shift. Like, I would say that that is bigger to society than something like streaming because it is the first time you can bring your favourite films into the home. That is absolutely just game-changing. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, I'm sure, as we move into the 90s. But there was even some complexity around getting hold of your favourite Disney movies then on VHS because Disney have this kind of strategy or they very much did back then where they would only release movies kind of every 10 years and this was the same for classics when they were being released to VHS so those movies that Tash mentioned there that all kind of came out on VHS Disney wouldn't have released them again for you know another five ten years or so so that was quite a challenge when you're a child I remember my mum desperately trying to get hold of The Little Mermaid on VHS for me and she couldn't no, I, I remember my first copy of, VH, of The Little Mermaid on VHS and it was a blue video and it came from a market. So it was probably some dodgy pirated copy, but there we go. <laughs> I love it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So other exciting things that happened in the year 1980, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad finally debuted at Disney's Magic Kingdom in Orlando. Very exciting. This ride was, of course, worked on by my favorite Disney Imagineer, Tony Baxter. So yeah, great to see the day before your birthday as well, Tash, November 15th. I know, 10, 10 years before, 10 years and a day before I was born. So, um, yeah, there, there we go. Very exciting indeed. Lots of stuff going on at the parks as well. And Disneyland celebrated 25 years. Can you believe it's 1980 and Disneyland is already 25 years old? That seems pretty crazy to me. And the Mickey Mouse Review Show closed at the Magic Kingdom to be moved to Tokyo. Obviously, we have not spoken about Tokyo yet, as it has not yet been opened. But never fear, all of that was going on at the moment. Production of Tokyo Disneyland was in place at this time, and we will be speaking about it more in depth very, very shortly. But this show, they thought, you know, it's not really one for the Magic Kingdom. We'll put it in over in Tokyo. It was an audio animatronic show which featured Mickey conducting an orchestra. Oh, it kind of sounds like a poor man's magic. I've actually never heard of it before, but... Yeah, I wonder if that's kind of what inspired PhilharMagic to become a thing. Very exciting. And then just to wrap up the year 1980, we did have some very notable births. So just to name a few of the people that were born in 1980, Lin-Manuel Miranda was born on the 16th of January in 1980. Kristen Bell was born on July 18th. I'm kind of at a loss to the fact that they're the same age. I kind of don't see that some somewhere. I feel that life has been quite cruel to Lynn Manuel. But Zachary Levy, who voices Flynn Rider in Tangled, was born on September 29th. Ryan Gosling, who did, of course, make his child star debut in the Mickey Mouse Club, was born on November 12th, 1980. And Christina Aguilera, who was also a founding member of that sort of 90s lineup of Mickey Mouse Club kids was born on December 18th. Oh, there we go. Lots of famous people. And I feel like that will carry on again throughout this decade. But moving on to the next year, 1981. And again, we saw lots of movies being re-released. These included Freaky Friday, Mercedes, your favourite with your heartthrob, the Swiss family Robinson, (laughs) uh, Cinderella, and all the Herbie movies were re-released in 1981. Even Herbie Goes Bananas. I mean... It's a bit, you know, it's only been out for a year and it's being re-released. I don't know. But all the Herbie movies, apparently. So I'm going to include Herbie Goes Bananas in that too. Nice. We did have, amongst all of these re-releases, a brand new Disney classic in 1981 as well. This movie is one that my mum is notorious for falling asleep to. I don't know why, but every time I used to put this on as a child, it would send my mum into a deep sleep. It is, of course, The Fox and the Hound, which was released on July the 10th, 1980. And fun little fact for you all, it was actually the last Disney animated movie that featured the Bonavista logo. Oh, there we go. I see the Fox and the Hound. I know you say it makes your mum go to sleep, but it's one of those movies to me. It will always be one of the saddest Disney films. 
Yeah, I no, I'm I'm not I'm not with you on that one, I'm afraid. So let's talk about some different movies. So we had some more VHS releases this year, Tash, one of which was Alice in Wonderland, great classic there. We also had Treasure Island as well. We spoke about how that was the first ever Walt Disney live action movie. So that's quite a big deal. Pollyanna as well, one of those other classics, and also the Shaggy Dog. I mean, we cannot get through a decade without mentioning the Shaggy Dog. Who knew? Sorry, listeners. Listeners are probably absolutely sick of this by now. Like, why are they banging on about the Shaggy Dog all the time? But you can't make this stuff up. It swarmed its way into every decade. There we are. So if Marty McFly turns up outside your house with a DeLorean, whisks you off to 1981, don't worry, Tash. You will be able to get your hands on a VHS copy. Absolutely. I'm very excited about this. Can't wait for my VH copy of uh, The Shaggy Dog when Marty and um, Doc Brown come a-knocking. So another exciting thing that happened this year was Walt Disney Productions purchased the rights to Gary K. Wolf's novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which obviously Disney eventually turned into Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I knew that this wasn't original, but I didn't actually realise it was based on a novel. I feel like I knew it wasn't original and then it's like, well, what else could it be based on other than a novel? But maybe I thought it was a comic or something like that. It, yeah, the, the idea of it being an actual novel seems weird to me. Yeah, and I'm interested to know if the novel features characters like Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, Daffy and Donald. I think I might have to get my hands on a copy of that novel. Yeah, I imagine that it's probably quite a loose and it's a character called Roger Rabbit who does a similar sort of or has a similar sort of story arc, but they've added in the extra characters. I don't know. Another exciting thing that happened in 1981, Disney on Ice is founded. Mercedes, have you ever seen a Disney on Ice show? I haven't. And it's one of those things that I would love to explore once I have my very own children, if that's something that they would like to go and do. I can't say that it's high on my priority list at the moment. No, me neither. I went to see Beauty and the Beast on ice when I was very, very young. And actually, a few weeks ago, I think my mum was clearing out our attic at home and she found the rose that we bought as a souvenir from that show Um, Mm. and that's where the first chip cup that my family has came from it was a little plastic chip cup which I now have the china version so yeah that's my experience of of Disney on Ice but obviously Disney on Ice is such a huge thing for a lot of families and I know it's absolutely massive in America I think they've just started taking bookings again and it's restarting again this year after the pandemic so there's a little bit of extra news for any of you fans in America of Disney on Ice who want to go and see it have a look at that I'm surprised it's that old yeah yeah I guess yeah that would make it very old I would have thought it was more of a thing of the 90s I would I wouldn't have even said that I've only heard of Disney on Ice in recent years I'm surprised to hear that you went to see a Beauty and the Beast production maybe it had a bit of a hiatus for for a while I don't know (laughs) yeah 1981 was the year that it was founded crazy And then other exciting things that happened in 1981, the Magic Kingdom celebrated its 10th birthday. Again, I cannot believe we're already at 10 years of Walt Disney World. Yeah, and actually we haven't spoken about it that much right now. We're in the middle of the 10th anniversary. All we've got is Magic Kingdom and Disney Springs or Disney Village Market House or whatever it was called back then. So it's kind of crazy that the expansions didn't come until much later on. 
Yeah, definitely. It took a while, but we will be talking about some more of those expansions in this episode, which I'm very, very excited. And then again, 1981 saw lots of famous Disney people being born. We had Justin Timberlake, who was obviously part of the Mickey Mouse Club, along with Britney Spears. She was also born at that year. We had Tom Hiddleston, who is, correct me if I'm wrong here, because it's Marvel. He plays Loki. That's correct, Tash. I know something about Marvel. Josh Gad, obviously Olaf. Natalie Portman, very famous for Star Wars. Chris Evans, again, I know he has a connection to Marvel. Is he Captain America? He is Captain America. And actually, Natalie Portman is quite an iconic person because she's one of very few people that is actually a Star Wars character and a Marvel character. And she is going to, rumours thinks that she's going to be the new Thor. Ah, that's cool. I have not heard that. When you said that, I was like, she's not in Marvel, is she? She is in Marvel. She's already been in Marvel. So she plays a character called Jane, who is Thor's love interest. And in the comics, Jane becomes Thor. And that's what people think is going to happen in Love and Thunder. Uh, Okay, now you say that because I have actually seen Thor. And I actually quite liked Thor. And now I remember that she was in it. So yeah, my memory is terrible. I only watched that movie last year. And Beyonce was also born in 1981. And obviously she went on to voice Nala in the live action Lion King. She did indeed. And then the final thing to happen in 1981 and something that definitely paved the way for my childhood and I'm sure a lot of our listeners' childhoods as well was that Disney started to release video games. And these mostly contained Mickey Mouse and were in collaboration with Nintendo. I remember playing some of these old Nintendo Disney games with my uncle when I was a child. My favorite was the Aladdin video game that came out in the 90s. I also really vividly remember the Hercules game that was on PlayStation, again, came out in the 90s. So if Disney video games are something of an area of interest for you, definitely send me a DM on Twitter because I have very fond memories of playing these games. And that pretty much wraps up 1981. Shall we move into 1982? Let's. So a big movie was released in 1982 and I'm not a fan of this movie, but I very, very much associate it with the 80s because Tron was released. And I know that nowadays, People look on that movie not so fondly, but I'm quite grateful to this movie because trying to do quick maths here, 30, 40 years later, we finally got the Tron ride at Shanghai Disneyland. And it is one of the best Disney rides, in my personal opinion. Obviously, it's coming to Walt Disney World very soon. Hopefully this year, I think it's going to open. So yeah, this is why I'm appreciative of this movie. Yeah, I don't like this movie. Let's move on. (laughs) So Tash mentioned Walt Disney World there. And something finally really momentous happened for Walt Disney World in 1982. And that was the Epcot opened, the second gate, if you will, in Orlando. I'm like, when I think about it like that, and I think that, you know, I knew that Epcot came out in the 80s. Obviously, it's like the most 80s place in the world, I would say. It's kind of still stuck in the 80s, which is why I love it so much. But to think that it came out like nine years before I was born, it definitely feels older than that, which is quite interesting. And one of the opening day attractions was Journey into the Imagination. And 
anyone that's been on that attraction, I think it kind of shows that Journey into the Imagination is that old because it, in my opinion, is in need of a little bit of a facelift. But, of course, you know, lots of fans, lots of loyal Epcot fans who love that ride, and this is obviously why. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Epcot is certainly one of my most favourite parks. And it's obviously changed a lot because I believe when it was initially opened, it wasn't really the theme park. Or I don't even know if I would call it a theme park now. I know it has rides and attractions, but it's just so different from any other thing that I've ever been to. I find it hard to describe. I feel like I can't call it a theme park. Oh, to me, it's very much a theme park. Like If you think about something like the World Showcase... You can't get more theme park than that. It gives me real vibes of Port Aventura in Spain, which is the universal park there. And that's split into different countries and they probably copied Epcot, let's let's face it. But yeah, to me, I definitely see it as a theme park. But I know what you mean, Tash. It's kind of got a more premium feel. It's a little bit more educational. You know, I don't imagine I'm going to see kids in teacups being sick, eating candy floss at Epcot. It's not that kind of place. It doesn't have like fun fair vibes. Yeah, definitely. And I think because obviously Walt's original vision was to have it as more of like a working town and it's changed so much from what he originally planned. I guess originally it wasn't meant to be a theme park. Yeah, I find it weird that they were like, let's create Walt's vision, but we're not going to create Walt's vision because he's passed away and we just couldn't do it justice. But let's kind of take the idea and the name, but make it into a theme park. Like, that's just weird. Like, I feel like you abandon ship or you you make something new or you go with the original concept You have this experimental prototype community of tomorrow but it's not a community of tomorrow it's a theme park that looks a little bit at tomorrow but not hugely very bizarre yeah I completely agree with you there and it was a very big year for Disney parks because 1982 is the year that Tokyo Disneyland opened this is of course the first park that we have now had outside America which When I speak to people about that and tell them that if you're not really into Disney, that always really surprises people because I think people always assume that Paris was next and then Tokyo came a long time later. But nope, Tokyo was there in 1982 after the success of both the America parks, particularly Florida. Tokyo decided that they wanted to get in on a piece of the action. Obviously, Tokyo is run slightly differently. It's mainly owned by the Oriental Land Company with Disney having rights to decisions over what goes into that park and how things are run but it's not primarily owned by Disney yeah it's interesting when you say about Tokyo and people that aren't into Disney like I think there are Disney fans that don't know that but what really really baffles me is for anyone in the UK that watches Richard Osman's House of Games which is a game show on BBC which I highly recommend it's very good There's a sort of, there's these different quiz segments and it's random what he's going to do each week. And there's one where there's like a map of, it will be Europe or the United Kingdom or the US. And he'll ask them a question and they all have an iPad and they have to press on the map where they think it is. And the question was, can you identify the first ever Disneyland? And three out of four of the contestants pressed Florida. Oh, really? Yes. I don't think that does surprise me because it's the flagship park. And if you're not super into Disney, I think that a lot of people would just think about that park. 
Yeah, and especially for a UK audience, these are UK celebrities, right? And the woman that did get it correct was really proud of herself. She was like, ah, trick question. I know it's California. But like, I think in the UK specifically, people wouldn't know that because if you think about it, right, Tash, we were talking about how the television kind of came out around the same sort of time that Walt Disney was doing these um, sort of little bits where you could see Disneyland being built. That would not have been broadcast in the UK. So the first exposure that most of our parents' generation would have had into Disneyland would have been Walt Disney World being opened and being expanded in the 80s. And that's when international travel became, well, less elitist, let's be honest. Everybody suddenly had access to be able to get on a plane and things like that. And yeah, it is the flagship. And yeah, I think if you ask most people in the UK that have been to one Disney park, where have you been? It's Disneyland Paris. And then if you've been to two, it's Disneyland Paris and Florida. It's just the way it is. And I don't know why that is, but it's definitely a thing. Yeah, no, I I, th- I think you're right. Like when I think about being younger and being at school, everyone that went to Disneyland went to Florida. I think I was the only one that actually went to California and never went to Florida. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Nice. So other things that happened in 1982 with regards to parks at Disneyland, we've got Pinocchio's Daring Journey, which actually really surprises me that that attraction is from the 80s because it feels like it's a 1950s attraction, very similar to Peter Pan's Flight, actually more basic than Peter Pan's Flight. And we also got the new Fantasyland in Disneyland in California, which if you aren't familiar with, I very much encourage that you go back and listen to our episode on Fantasyland where we talk about that in a lot of detail. Yeah, absolutely. It was basically a big facelift that the whole place got to give it that more sort of Bavarian feel and vibe in terms of the architecture and things like that. But certainly go back and have a listen. I think when you talk about New Fantasyland, a lot of people think of the Magic Kingdom expansion that we now know as New Fantasyland. And we don't often realise that California has also had a New Fantasyland as well, although it was in 1983. And I'm sure that we'll have another New Fantasyland in years to come as well. So something that came out in 1982 that I was certainly a massive fan of throughout the 90s was Disney Channel. So Disney Channel started broadcasting on the 18th of April in America. And this started with a show called Good Morning Mickey, which Tash, would you care to tell us a little bit more about that? I really wanted Good Morning Mickey to be like a Good Morning Britain or like a BBC breakfast show. But uh, no, sadly not. (laughs) Good Morning Mickey was simply kind of, you know, what we know or where we would place those Mickey Mouse shorts today. It was a compilation of shorts all put together for the Disney Channel. But how exciting that this was the first thing to come out of it. And I'm so excited to talk more about the Disney Channel as we get into the 90s, because I think, you know, what Disney Channel was originally, Good Morning Mickey, obviously Mickey Mouse shorts. We had a lot of these shorts with the original five or the famous five in them. And then it very much changed in the 90s where we started getting more kind of shows aimed at young preteens and things like that. So I'm so excited to talk about that. And I'm sure you are, Mercedes, as well, because I know you're a huge fan of the Disney Channel. Oh, gosh, yeah. I was a Disney Channel obsessive, so I cannot wait for that next week. 
1982 also brought about some more celebrities. So Tash, I know you are a huge fan of this individual. David Diggs, I don't know if I pronounced that correct. David, David, I'm not sure how to say it, but the guy from Hamilton and the guy that's going to be playing Sebastian in the new live action Little Mermaid was born in 1982, along with Seth Rogen, who voices Pumbaa in the live action Lion King, and Anne Hathaway, who's famous for playing the main protagonist in The Princess Diaries and also the White Queen in the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland. But again, I find this really interesting that all these people were of similar age because, but then when I think of Anne Hathaway, I still think of her as The Princess Diaries and that film came out, what, probably about 15 years ago, maybe even more than that. But I think of her as being so much younger than someone that was born maybe in like the previous year. Yeah, I think what's going to freak us out is when we're looking at births of 1990 and 1991 and we get a glimpse into who's the same age as us. Oh, God, yeah, and who's younger than us? Oh, I haven't even thought about that. Yeah, that's that's going to be scary next week. And to finish off the year, obviously, Christmas is at the end of the year. We love a bit of Christmas at the Chat Disney podcast. And the very first Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party was held at the Magic Kingdom. Straight into 1983. And again, more exciting things going on this year, although it was more of a quiet year for Disney. And the live action division of Walt Disney Productions was incorporated as Walt Disney Pictures. And this happened on April the 1st. And this was to kind of separate and diversify their films that were obviously going to be live action because they some of them were going to be intended for slightly different audiences than the animation. So it kind of put those two studios I guess as two separate things. Very interesting indeed and final bit of news that happened in 1983 as Tash said not a very successful one in terms of Disney news but there we are the Mickey Mouse balloon made its final appearance at the Macy's Thanksgiving parade and after the news that we shared last week with it you know being blown off course because of wind and so on it's probably good it was retired. Probably. I find it interesting that when I was researching this, I learned that the Donald Duck balloon continued on past 1983. So I don't know why the decision was made to get rid of Mickey and keep Donald, but maybe he was just more popular at the time or maybe Macy's just really liked him. I don't know. I think it's probably more likely that the Mickey balloon was damaged. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, who knows? So let's head straight in to 1984. And again, quite a lot happening in 1984 for the Walter Disney Company. Um, The Adventures of Andre and Wally B short was released by the Graphics Group. Now, who are the Graphics Group, I hear you cry? Well, they would later be renamed Pixar. And The Adventures of Andre and Wally B is, you know, the short that most people would would think of as being the original Pixar short and we know that they became very very famous for their shorts and this very excitingly paved the way for a lot of what we're going to be talking about in the next episode because this short is what really sparked the company's interest in computer animation and where would the Walt Disney Company be today if it wasn't for computer animation? 
Yeah, this is huge news and a really big testament, I think, to what Tash was saying at the beginning of today's episode around technology and advancements really taking over the 1980s. And something else took over the 1980s as well, because 1984 was the year in which Mike Eisner became CEO of the Walt Disney Company and Frank Wells also stepped in as president. And it seemed like a partnership that was kind of made in heaven. It went very well in the beginning. But those of you that have watched the Imagineering series will know that Sadly, once Frank Wells wasn't around anymore, Mike Eisner was at the helm on his own and unstoppable. And a lot of poor decisions were made, unfortunately, under his leadership. Yes, there's a lot about that in the Imagineering series, isn't there? And about all the controversy surrounding Mike Eisner. And a lot of people don't look back on his time fondly. But there we go. He was a big part of the Disney company during the 1980s. And along with Mike Eisner joining the company, someone else celebrated something big at the company because Donald Duck turned 50 in 1984. Maybe that's why Macy's kept him in the Thanksgiving parade. I don't know. There were lots of Donald-themed parades at both Magic Kingdom and Disneyland. And Tokyo introduced a very special stage show called Donald Duck's Birthday Party. Nice. I'm glad Tokyo was celebrating the man himself. And final bit of parks news for 1984, the Alice in Wonderland attraction reopened, completing Disneyland's new Fantasyland. And in Epcot, the Moroccan pavilion opened. So kind of interesting to me that that pavilion wasn't there for opening, but nice that Epcot decided to add more locations as the park was more established. So with all of that in mind, shall we head into 1985? Let's. And things get a little bit dark and dingy here because the only movie, well, there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but the main bad thing that happened in 1985, there wasn't a lot of news, The Black Cauldron was released. And obviously, we know that this film was a huge flop for Disney. I think it nearly bankrupted the company, probably. It was so bad. And a lot of people still look back on that very... Not fondly at all. I watched it for the first time myself last year and I cannot say I enjoyed a single moment of it. Wow, Fletcher at 37 Disney Street will be very angry with you, Tash. I really like The Black Cauldron and it's quite an interesting one because I I don't think it scored that badly by critics, which is quite interesting. Like I'm just having a little look now. Let's see. So in terms of the box office reception, as you say, Tash, it wasn't great. It cost $44 million to make this movie. Do you want to have a stab at how much it grossed? Oh, God, like five? No, it was a little bit more than that. It was $21.3 million. So it resulted in a loss. They lost like almost $20 million for this movie, which is crazy. More than 23, 23. God, maths is not my strong suit. $23 million lost, which is really bad. And another big reason as to why it did so badly is that the, the Care Bears movie was also released at the same time. And I think just to add insult to injury, really, Disney lost in terms of, you know, box office success to the Care Bears movie, which made 22.9 million domestically. Definitely. I used to love the Care Bears movie. Now we're going off on a tangent. It was one of my favourite movies growing up in the 90s. And I guess, you know, a 20, did we say $23 million loss? Obviously is huge. But I guess now in the 80s that Disney have got three parks under their belt. It's not as significant, you know, when we were talking in the 90s about how much Sleeping Beauty costs to make. 
and then how much that lost at the box office. That was really significant for the company at the time, whereas they could probably put this down more to being a big flop. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at the critics' reviews and they're quite divisive. So the Chicago Sun-Times said the key to the movie is in the richness of the characterizations and the two best characters, I think, are the Horned King and a fuzzy little creature called Gurgi, which I tend to agree with. I think the people that watch those movies remember those characters. I think that the main protagonists are very forgettable. And then Walter Goodman from the New York Times said, people old enough to recall their delight at earlier feature animations, no doubt burnished by memory are not of course the audience at which the black cauldron is aimed nor apparently is it aimed at youngsters who have had a taste of more sophisticated animation from the star wars breed of movie so quite a negative critique there i'm gonna put it out there and sorry chris fletcher if you really love this movie gurgi is one of the most annoying disney characters i probably the most actually yeah he is the most annoying disney character if you ask me he sacrifices himself. He's good. He's so annoying. No, I I like Gurgi. Oh, I am not a Gurgi fan. But all was not lost in 1985. After the flop of the Black Cauldron, there was a very famous meeting that people refer to as the Gong Show. And this was a meeting to pitch ideas for Michael Eisner. Obviously, you know, he was just made CEO in the previous year. And Jeffrey Katzenberg. And this led to a lot of proposals for films that went on to become successful and famous for the Walt Disney Company. So in this meeting, proposals included a sequel to the rest Rescuers, which we obviously now know as the Rescuers Down Under, Oliver Twist with Animals, don't need to spell out what movie that became, and there was also suggestions for The Great Mouse Detective, Treasure Island in Space, which I think isn't that like Muppets in Space version now, something. Are you joking? Treasure Island in Space a thing. Treasure Planet! Oh yeah. That's how much I've I've actually never seen that movie. Oh yeah, Treasure Planet, Treasure Island in Space. Ah, That connection. ah, It's literally got all the same characters. Oh, I don't know. I've never seen it. I've never seen Treasure Island, as we've already established, and I've certainly never seen Treasure Planet either. I can't even get the name out. But there is I'm thinking of Muppets in Space and then Muppets of Muppets Treasure Island. I'm putting Yeah, yeah, there's Muppets Treasure Island. Okay. There we go. My error there. (laughs) And I think the biggest and most exciting thing for me to come out of this meeting was the suggestion to finally make an animated version of Hans Christian Andersen's tale, The Little Mermaid. Yeah, I mean, most of those movies that you just cited are absolute garbage. So, so much for Mike Eisner being like, let's turn the animation department around. The Rescuers Down Under, Oliver and Company, and Basil the Great Mouse Detective, and Treasure Planet, let's throw that in there for good measure, even though that wouldn't be released for for many decades to come. They're some of the poorest Disney movies and where we've just upset our dear friend Chris Fletcher by talking trash about the Black Cauldron I know that all of the 37 Disney Street podcast hosts hate Oliver and Company I don't dislike it as much as they do but I don't think it's one of Disney's finest works yeah I agree I mean they really hate it with vengeance don't they and it's it's not my favorite but I I don't feel quite as passionately about it as as they do 
No. So that big meeting took place in 1985, as Tash said. And then in 1986, just one year later, one of those movies did come into fruition. Basil the Great Mouse Detective was released. I actually quite like this movie. Again, it's not going to make any top 10 lists of mine. Maybe like top 10 Disney movies of the 1980s, because, you know, it's slim pickings. But it's not a favorite of mine. But I like it. It's got a lot of nostalgic memories for me. I know that that bat character used to frighten you, Tash. Fidget? Fidget. I hated Fidget. I'm, I actually think he's quite cute now. <laughs> yeah, I think he's, he reminds me of Bartok from Anastasia. And I love Bartok. And I feel like they've got the same kind of story in the sense that I feel like Rattigan, how like Rasputin is like with Bartok, like kind of makes him bad. I feel like Rattigan does the same with Fidget. Okay, so Tash and I are currently recording this over Zoom because, you know, pandemic. I'm just going to share my screen. Have you forgotten how he looks? No, okay, Mercedes is showing me that famous picture of him with his teeth out. There he's terrifying. That is 100% why I was scared of him when I was young. If you look at that nice little picture of him smiling and the picture of him with the little, is it a beret on? He's quite cute. What, here? Yeah. Really? There he looks like he could be in something like like Five or Goes West or like a Don Bluth film, I feel like. The story, it, it's almost like that picture of him with the little hat on where he looks a bit innocent. The film could almost be about him and he's had his child stolen from him. He's the father. He's the father in that picture, he is. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of Fidget. Like, why is his scarf hairy? He's just a really ugly designed character. Like, he looks a little bit like a monkey, actually, rather than a bat. But anyway, we digress. I'm not a fan of bats generally. Whenever I've been to, like, a bat enclosure in my life, which is not that many times, but I always remember it really smells bad. I hate bats. Like, bats absolutely terrify me, mainly because they're the biggest carrier of rabies, which is the most terrifying thing for me. So that is why I'm not a fan of bats. But the film did pretty well at the box office. It cost $14 million to make, and it grossed $50 million worldwide. So after the flop of The Black Cauldron, it did pretty well. That's crazy that that cost $15 million to make. And The Black Cauldron, which made less money at the box office, cost 44. They must have really put all of their efforts into creating The Black Cauldron. That is absolutely crazy. And in 1986, it wasn't just Walt Disney who were busy animating. Pixar was founded. So as we were talking about Andre and Wally B, Pixar became established as Pixar. The Pixar that we know today it was founded in 1986 by Edwin Cat and Alvy Ray Smith. And the first ever official Pixar short was released in 1986, which was, of course, Luxo Junior, which I think is probably the most famous Pixar short. It does, of course, feature the famous Luxo lamp that we see in the Pixar credits, the opening credits. I really like this short and I would say it's one of my favourite because I love the Luxo lamp so much. It's so short as well. Like, I know it's a short, but it's short for a Pixar short. It's got such a simple message. And I think it really, well, it was created just to show off what computer technology could do at that time. And clearly it did the job. Definitely. And even if you go, like, you try to put yourself 
in the mindset of being someone who lives in 1986 and seeing this short and how amazing it would be at that time. And now you go back and watch those shorts and they do not stand the test of time. The one I'm thinking of mostly is um, Tin Toy. I think that came in the 90s. But my God, if you go back and you look at that baby and you compare it to the latest Pixar release, that is absolute trash. And Andre and Wally B as well that we mentioned, like that looks like it was made in the same software that created the Windows 98 maze savings. What, what were they called? Screensavers. Gosh, I haven't thought about screensavers for years. You, I know exactly which one you're thinking of, the one that like takes you into the automatic maze. Yeah, so 90s, yeah. that maybe even came about in the 80s. In terms of the company itself, Walt Disney Productions changed its names to the Walt Disney Company. So they became a separate name and the feature animation division split off into its own section, which they called the Walt Disney Feature Animation Division. Yes, and not only did that happen, Walt Disney himself posthumously of course was inducted into the television academy hall of fame and fox broadcasting were launched as the fourth major network in the u.s major news network in the u.s of course at this point in time fox was not owned by disney but we all know what's to come absolutely several things going on at the parks as well during 1986 the living seas opened at epcot and something that I'm not so keen on to do with Disney, as you know, many of our regular listeners will know very well, the Country Bears, they had a bit of an update in 1986 because the Country Bears Vacation Hoedown, that debuts at Disneyland in 1986, as if those bears couldn't get any more annoying, they decided to give them their own big hoedown. And one of the biggest things I think to come out of the 80s, certainly something I really associate Disney parks with when thinking about the 80s, was Captain EO opened at the Magic Kingdom in Disneyland. And Captain EO, for those of you who might not be familiar with it because it is not in the parks anymore, was a sci-fi 3D film that was directed by Francis Ford Coppola and it starred very famously Michael Jackson and it was produced by George Lucas as well so lots of really big names in there it was there until it was replaced by the Honey I Shrunk the Audience 3D attraction but it did make a return in 2010 to kind of commiserate Michael Jackson's death and I was lucky enough to see it on my trip to Disneyland in 2013 and it's very very odd yeah, I would definitely say, and apologies to any chat Disney listeners that listen to our Tomorrowland episode, because Dan and I spent far too long talking about Captain EO then, and I'm probably going to do the same again now. It's very iconic. It's very classic. You know, what is going on in George Lucas's mind? It's that kind of world that only George Lucas could conjure up. And it's got those classic kind of Jim Henson puppets. It's, it's very wacky. If you haven't seen it, Go on to YouTube because you can watch it on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. I'd say it's worth checking out just for the sheer insaneness of it. I'm going to have that song in my head all day now. We are here to change the world. Anyway. So Michael, so Disney. Yeah, literally, right? Moving swiftly on to 1987. We're almost at the end of the decade. And this is probably, I think, the most important and significant thing to have happened in this entire 
decade. And that is that the Brave Little Toaster was released. And you might think that I'm being ironic and I'm not, I'm being genuine because I actually quite like the Brave Little Toaster. I used to watch it a lot on Disney Channel. I think there's a sequel as well, like the Brave Little Toaster goes to Mars or something that I kind of vaguely remember. But the reason that the Brave Little Toaster is so significant is that John Lasseter was the mastermind behind this. So what happened was John Lasseter and Glenn Keane, who's also a very famous Disney animator, he animated characters like The Little Mermaid. He was very instrumental in the creation of Rapunzel. They made a 2D sort of 3D test film And it was actually of the children's novel where the wild things are. And they basically did a test of it and they were like, look, look what we've created in 3D. And everybody was really impressed. And after the test was successful, the pair of them said, "Okay, well, we want to make a whole movie like that. So John Lasseter was really kind of the lead behind this. So he put together a pitch to the presidents at the time who were Ed Hansen and Ron W. Miller. And he put this whole pitch together for The Brave Little Toaster, his 3D film. Unfortunately, the pitch was rejected. They said that the only reason that the Walt Disney Company would explore computers is if it was faster or cheaper. And when they asked John Lasseter if this was going to be cheaper, he said, no, it will cost the same as a hand-drawn animation. So they said, "Okay, what's the point? We're not doing this. A few minutes after John Lasseter left the pitch, he got a phone call informing him that his position at the Walt Disney Company had been terminated. And the Walt Disney Company went on to make The Brave Little Toaster as a hand-drawn animation. Now, this is a really sad, tragic tale, but we all know that whilst this was happening, John Lasseter was busy at Pixar helping with the creation of Andre and Wally B, which was John Lasseter's first ever 3D animated release. Yeah, I mean... That's crazy. I even think that, I think actually probably until about 10 years ago, I didn't realise the significance of the Brave Little Toaster in terms of Disney. And I think a lot of people now are not familiar with this story at all. I watched it a lot as a child and it's one of those films that I haven't seen for years, but I must go back and watch it because I feel like it would be so nostalgic watching it now. But yeah, who knew that there was such a backstory behind this one film about, about a toaster? Yeah, and it makes me hate the film because I know what what went on and I know that the person that kind of, you know, came up with the concept and was so passionate about making it didn't get to make it in the way in which they envisioned. And also, I think it makes sense, like household objects. It was obviously a toaster for a reason. Like Tash said, the baby in tin toy looks awful. Okay, well, how can we get around that? Let's use inanimate objects like a toaster. We've seen success with that with obviously Toy Story, which would come in the 90s and then The Bug's Life as well. And so it made sense to feature characters that were not human because they could get away with the animation not looking as slick. Yeah, definitely. I mean, things like this kind of could have been... I always find really fascinating, like because you just wonder what this would have been if he had have got his way and if it had have been done by John Lasseter as originally intended like how would we think of this movie today because I feel like it's one of those films that now probably a lot of people that were born in the 90s have seen but 
a lot of other people probably don't see it as being a classic movie or probably are not even familiar with it. So it's interesting to think about where it would have been if it had have been produced under, you know, how it was originally intended to be. Yeah. And I think the only reason I'm familiar with it is because I had access to Disney Channel and like a lot of kids growing up didn't. My grumpy, my grumpy, my fiance, grumpy, that's what I meant to say. He did not have any channels growing up apart from, you know, your terrestrial one, two, three, four, and, and channel five when it debuted, big, big day if you've only got four channels in your household. So he probably has never heard of the Brave Little Toaster because I think it was only accessible to those of us that had Disney Channel. But anyway, that's enough on the Brave Little Toaster. Tash, what else happened in 1987? So Mercedes, something that I know that you were really happy that happened because it's probably one of your favourite attractions today, Star Tours opened at Disneyland. And obviously this is a great attraction. It's probably, I want to say it's your second favourite attraction. Yeah, I'm going to say, I mean, it's difficult. Ask me tomorrow, ask me in three days time and it will probably be different. It's it's definitely in my top five Disney attractions, definitely. Good. I mean, and it almost wasn't Star Tours. So Star Tours was first produced or the ride that later became Star Tours as a live action simulator ride for The Black Hole, which was a live action Disney movie. But they didn't go ahead with that because it was going to cost them $50 million to make. And the film wasn't that popular. So they decided to shelve that. But then obviously with the success of Star Wars, they thought, hey, we could take this idea. We could take the idea of having a simulator, which takes people on a journey, and we could give it to something that is successful like Star Wars. And in the end, it cost $32 million to make. So they managed to take a more successful franchise, knock the price off, and they gave us Star Tours. And thank God they did. I just love that ride. Can you imagine if it was some trashy black hole? We spoke about the black hole last week and neither myself nor Tash had heard of it before. So thank goodness that didn't happen. But George Lucas, we said when we were talking about Star Wars in our 70s episode, he only wanted to collaborate with Disney. Once Star Wars was a success... He originally pitched the movie to Disney and I bet they're kicking themselves that they didn't take him up on it. But after that, he said, Disney are the only company that I want to collaborate with. And as Tash said, it gave us Star Tours and it gave us Captain EO, as we said, in 1986. And Captain EO was so successful that it opened at Tokyo Disneyland in 1987. Absolutely. And then another random thing that happened in the parks in 1987, Disney thought it would be a good idea to incorporate their own currency. So Disney dollars were bought into the parks. These were initially in $1 and $5 bills, and they were originally used at Epcot. And in the same way as money is used, you could use them to buy anything within the parks. Kind of like having a voucher, I guess. A little bit pointless when you could just use your own money, but I guess if you're going to Disneyland, how exciting to have money that's got Mickey and Minnie and Donald on it. Yeah, so this debuted in Disneyland and in Walt Disney World, I'm assuming, if it was used yeah. at Epcot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can still get like Disney dollars in Walt Disney World. I don't know if you can in Disneyland, but I have seen them. And I guess it's a clever way, isn't it, to get you to use your money on Disney merchandise because at the end of the holiday, 
if you've still got a load of Disney dollars left over, there's only one place you can spend them. And the final thing that happened in 1987 was that Big Thunder Mountain, after the huge success it experienced in Walt Disney World and in Disneyland, also opened at Tokyo. So lots going on in 1987. So getting towards the end of the 1980s and 1988 saw a couple of kind of big movies released, but also mm, I don't know how successful we would deem them as being today because finally Who Framed Roger Rabbit premiered in New York City. We spoke about this earlier with Disney obtaining the rights to the novel and Oliver and Company was also produced. We've already spoken about this, so I don't think we have to say any more on that. No, let's leave that one there. Who Framed Roger Rabbit's a really interesting one because a lot of people cite that as being their favourite movie of all time. I know that it's a really, really popular one. It's certainly considered a cult classic. We've had a lot of enhancements to Disney parks that are based around Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So that kind of, to me, is indicative of the fact that it was probably quite popular at the time. Interestingly, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a movie that I really like and it was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who also directed my favorite film of all time back to the future yes so there we go there's a, a, a likeness there for me i'm i give or take roger rabbit i tried to rewatch really? it really into it yeah no way mm-hmm. it just isn't it, it's not for me isn't it you that used to be obsessed with betty boo betty boop yeah yeah she yeah. yeah it's it's a weird film i think but but Okay, I won't press you. We all have our, I mean, I like the Black Cauldron, so who am I to judge? So other things that happened in 1988, we had some more expansions to Disney parks. The Norway Pavilion opened at Epcot's World Showcase. The Disney Grand Floridian Resort and Spa opened at Walt Disney World, which actually I'm quite surprised about because I just assumed that would be an opening day resort, but apparently not. And we spoke about this on Tash's birthday episode, Mickey's Birthday Land opened at the Magic Kingdom. Oh, yes, Mickey's Birthday Land. Yeah, we spoke about that quite in length on my birthday episode because it was not something that Mercedes and I were ever familiar with. And I would have thought we'd have heard about it. But yeah, if you were alive in the 80s and you went to the parks and you remember Mickey's Birthday Land, then please do get in touch and and let us know because I'd like to hear more about it. And another big thing, obviously, paving the way for something that was already popular in the 1980s, but was going to become even bigger in the 90s, was obviously to do with gaming. And the Walt Disney Computer Software was founded as a video game division of the Walt Disney Company. Yes, so we've already mentioned a few games that came out in the 80s. And as Tash said, I cannot wait to get into that next week. So please do send us your favourite Disney games. I'd love to completely geek out and just chat games with you all and find out which games you love to play. And I'll let you know what some of my favourites were as well. So we're on to the final year now. It's 1989. Tash, you're probably in your mum's tummy at this point in time. So we're going to actually remember some of this stuff in next week's episode, which is really exciting. And the first thing that I want to talk about in 1989 is that Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was released. And this is a movie that I absolutely love it just fills me with so much nostalgia I watched it a lot on Disney Channel when I was a kid I thoroughly enjoyed the Honey I Shrunk the Kids play area at Hollywood Studios or Disney's MGM as it was known back then I really like this movie 
Yeah, I really, really like this movie. I rewatched this last year when Disney Plus first came out. It was one of the first things I rewatched. And yeah, I just think this is such an enjoyable family film. Such a feel-good movie. Yeah, I really like this movie. And of course, 1989 saw another big release. And hallelujah, The Little Mermaid was released. And obviously, this is probably my favourite Disney movie. It's always between that and Beauty and the Beast, but I love Ariel. Ariel is my favourite princess. Mercedes, hold your thoughts to yourself on that one. But finally, I think this is a really positive light for the Walt Disney Company after the failure of the Black Cauldron. And, you know, I know that things like Oliver and Company did okay and Basil, the great mouse detective, did all right at the box office. But, you know, we look back at those movies now and we think like, yeah, they're not great. But finally, The Little Mermaid, what a classic. It's going to pave the way again for the rebirth of the Disney princess. So hallelujah. Thank you, 1989, for bringing us this. Yeah, and about time too. So The Little Mermaid is really the birth of the Disney Renaissance period. We've just spoken about The Black Cauldron, The Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company. These are such forgettable movies that do not define the Walt Disney Company and what it's capable of. So, you know, stick to what you know, Disney. You've had great successes in the past by taking these classic tales and adapting them. And, you know, princesses are something we know that Walt Disney Company are fantastic at delivering. And this movie, I mean, animated by Glenn Keane, vocals by Jodie Benson. It is really iconic. And yeah, I'm so excited that the Disney musical is back as well. So what a great year for Disney. And Disney also had a lot of successes in 1989 around their parks and resorts division. So MGM Studios that I just mentioned opened at Walt Disney World in 1989. It opened as a kind of Tinseltown Universal Studios-esque park. I remember it fondly from the 1990s. As I say, I loved hanging out in that Honey, I Shrunk the Kids play area. Typhoon Lagoon also opened at Walt Disney World in 1989. So it was a pretty big year for expansions in Walt Disney World, which was awesome. But that wasn't the end. We also got Splash Mountain in Disneyland and this was of course the ride that Tony Baxter devised that was based on some of the South I don't know about you Tash I don't think I have the energy today to go into my thoughts on Tony Baxter bringing a racist movie from whenever it was into 1989. The only thing I will say is that I'm surprised at that it happened in 1989 if it was you know in the 70s or whatever I could understand it more but 1989 that was a year before I was born that seems pretty insane to me but you know we'll leave it there yeah definitely I I agree with you and then the other big thing of course was that Star Tours one of my faves opened in Tokyo yes lots of exciting park developments in 1989 and more exciting film news as well because I think a lot of people would say this is probably one of the most successful popular Disney movies because production began on The Lion King and of course we will be talking about that movie in more depth next week.
Yeah, what a fantastic place to end the 1980s and the the teasing of things to come with The Lion King. And I am really excited to sink my teeth into the 90s next week because, as I said, it's finally the first decade in this sort of mini-series that Tash and I were actually around for. So we will actually remember a little bit of it, which is really exciting. Unfortunately, lovely, loyal Chat Disney listeners, you let us down. Our tweet, Tash of the monkey's uncle dance did not receive enough likes so we'll keep that to ourselves for the meantime but if you would like to get in touch with tash or i do reach out to us on twitter you can always send us a tweet our twitter handle is at chat disney uk or you can find us on instagram at chat disney we're now going to head into the final segment of the episode mad chatter most everyone's mad here This week on Mad Chatter, I set the topic because I want to have a brutal, honest, open discussion about the Disney cruise line that's coming to the UK. I've got a smirk on my face as I say it out loud. What a way to make money. I I just, I'm tempted. I'm not going to lie. If it's it's not a really ridiculous amount of money, I kind of, okay, let's go back to the very beginning. So those of you that are listening that are thinking, what is she harping on about? Disney have announced that because international travel in the UK is prohibited right now and cruises are also prohibited, they are going to be doing a special offering this summer for UK residents where you can board a Disney cruise ship for two, three or four nights from Liverpool, Southampton, London. There are lots of different destinations in the UK that you can port. You'll be at sea for those few days, I assume docked, but you know, you might circle the coast of England. I'm not quite sure. And then at the end of your stay, whether it is two, three or four nights, you'll get back off the ship in in the place that you ported from. So essentially it's staying in a Disney bubble for a few days. And at first I thought, wow, amazing. I've never been on a Disney cruise. I don't think a Disney cruise is something I will ever do purely because cruises are not my number one holiday of choice and the Disney cruise costs thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. So I kind of at first was like, oh, I get to go on a Disney cruise ship for a couple of days as like a trial and that's kind of good. But then I remembered that this is UK residents only and I thought about the kinds of people that might be on that Disney cruise. And I thought, I'm all right, actually. <laughs> oh, Mercedes, controversial. Yeah, for me, a cruise is probably one of my worst nightmares. I don't like the sea. I can imagine a cruise being quite claustrophobic. So it's not for me. And my first thought was, why would you pay to just like bop around like Liverpool Harbour or like go like round like the UK ocean? Like, But then I thought about it and I was like, well, you probably don't go on a Disney cruise because you want to see the sea and you want to see the sights. You go on it for the experiences that you can have on board. And I would be very intrigued. I think it's a brilliant idea for families, depending on the cost, obviously. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be affordable. It's Disney, probably not. And I don't think that it's very fair that they announce it and they haven't put out prices yet because there's going to be a lot of kids that see this that really want to go because they can't go to Disneyland. And I think there's going to be a lot of parents that have to let their kids down when they probably announce how expensive it's likely to be. Yeah, there's some bits that I'm intrigued by. 
obviously, you know, we've got West End style shows on, I think it's Beauty and the Beast from looking at the advert. But yeah, that would be uh, amazing to see. I'd like to know what the dining experience is involved and the meet and greets. But I can't help feeling that this is very much like a quick, like get it out of the bag, like let's make some money and that it's going to be, you know, you've got one show of Beauty and the Beast and it's not going to be West End quality. You've got... Oh, it will. It will be. It will be. Okay, well, maybe it will be. I can't help feeling like, apart from that, that your character meet and greets are going to be like the same few characters. I don't... I could be wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't feel like it's going to be your American standard Disney cruise. I think it will And let me tell you why. Disney have got all these ships right now that can't go anywhere, right? So, yeah, it's a quick and dirty, like, yeah, quick, get it over to Liverpool Harbour and sit it there. We'll make some money. Like, yeah, 100%. That that is definitely what's happening here. But the cruise ships themselves, they're the same ones that port from the Caribbean and stuff. So the quality is going to be the same. You say about the shows, these shows, they're Disney shows. Have you ever seen a bad Disney show? Like, they don't exist. It's its going to be the, the Frozen show I know that's on the cruise is, is basically exactly the same as the Frozen show in Disney's California Adventure, which I've seen with my own two eyes, and it's fantastic. What you've got to remember is, as well, Tash, we've got all these West End actors and actresses right now that are out of work. So I think the calibre of talent is going to be, you know, top-notch. I was very against going because one, I have no desire to go on a cruise. It's probably the worst kind of holiday I can think of as well. I just don't like the connotations of cruises. It's not something I've ever wanted to do. Secondly, and I'm sorry if I offend anyone and you never listen to Chat Disney again, but the general British public that are going to be on this cruise, I don't want to mix with. And I know that makes me sound bigoted, but unfortunately, it's the truth. I go on holiday primarily to escape Britain. I don't want to be trapped on a boat with British people for two, three, four days. That said, I read about it, Tash. There's an adults-only bar. There's a dining experience that looks amazing. This, I'm not 100% sure if it's correct, but I was listening to 37 Disney Street and Lucy was saying that the boat that it is, because you know they have the different ones, like the Magic, the whatever, the one that it is, the restaurant is a Rapunzel royal table and apparently the, I was going to say the Rapscallions, the Ruffians come and do like a musical dining experience. So when I started to read about adults only dining, adults only bar, there's a spa as well. You can get massages, treatments. It's all you can eat, foods included. I thought, do you know what? For two days, I could do this as a social experiment and just see what it's like. I'm never going to have the opportunity to go on a Disney cruise ever again. And I'm probably not going to get to go on holiday this year. So I'm just going to put this out there. I think it's going to be spenny. I do. If it is £300 a night or less, I will do it on my own if I have to. (laughs) I mean, I would come with you. I think there is one big thing that we are forgetting about here when we talk about it. We are in a pandemic and I'm pretty sure by the summer, we're still going to have to be social distancing. I know that Boris has got this grand plan of the end of June, like all restrictions completely go. I'm not entirely convinced that will be the case. And obviously you've got the deck where you can be outside, but I don't know. Do you really want to be stuck on a ship in a pandemic still with it going on? I'm not sure. And dining... Yeah, that all sounds great, but 
I'm pretty sure they're still going to have to have restrictions on characters and people and things like that. So I don't know. I'm I'm intrigued and I hope it is great. And I hope that lots of art, like people go on it and it's really successful and I can't wait to see footage and photos of it. But yeah, at the moment, I'm more excited to see the prices. Yeah, me too. I want to see the prices. I know that 37 Disney Street, Chris was saying £75 a person per head. I mean, you'd be lucky to find a travel lodge in Brighton for that. That that's is going to be... I was thinking, what's my max? Like, what? Because I kind of do want to do this now. And I think if it's like £300 a night, I'll definitely do it. If it's £500 a night, then I might think twice. But any more than £500 per person per night, and obviously I won't do it. But if it's between three and 500 a night for me, I that then I start to think, mm, not sure about this. If it's 300 or less, I'm definite I'm doing it 100%. I don't care if no one comes with me. Just to be on that ship. I do get what you're saying about the pandemic, Botash. I remember when the pandemic was really bad, it was the cruise ships that like were really suffering and like they all had to be quarantined like at sea and that was just being awful. Yeah, like how how hideous. I think for me, I think £300 a night, if you've got to pay for two nights, £600, you can have a nice holiday with that. Like I'm not going to pay that. I'll pay 300 quid for two nights, maybe 400 Yeah, this is a good point. £600, like... We went to Disneyland Paris for half that, right? In January for like five days. Yeah. <laughs> so when you think about it like that, I don't know. I'm pretty sure we'll have another discussion when they release the prices, which has got to be soon because booking opens this month. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by it. It's such a crazy concept that I'm just like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I, I do like in the way that they they are kind of thinking about their UK market and they know that we love to go to Disney, whether it's Paris, whether it's Florida. And I like that, I mean, in my head, they're like, let's give the UK public something. But I know there's an awful lot of thinking about money that they can make behind it as well. So, yeah, I, I'm quite touched in a way that they've given this to us. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Sailing, sailing round Liverpool Harbour doesn't quite have the same idea of sailing, sailing round Hawaii to me. I agree. The only thing that I would say as well that I'm concerned about, and obviously it's the thing I'm concerned about, you were worried about the quality of the entertainment. I, I'm genuinely not concerned about that. I am worried about food. Now, when I think about the only Disney offering we've ever had in the UK that involves food, I think of that Disney Primark store that opened in Birmingham and people showing pictures of the chicken nuggets in shapes of Mickey. If it's over here, eat your Mickey nuggets. I'm not here for that. You know, I want Lumiere serving me the grain stuff as the piano tinkles in the background. I want Cafe Fantasia vibes from Disneyland Paris. Yeah, that if, if, it's, if I was going to go, I want it to be a class, like a typical cruise, quite classy, but with Disney thrown in. And I know that's quite a mix of things, but yeah, I don't want it to be like you go into Benidorm <laughs> on holiday. But no, but I, I think it could be because I, I've said this before and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm British, whether that gives me permission to say this or not. I often say that I think that the thing that really ruins my Disneyland Paris and my Walt Disney World holidays is the British holiday makers that also have come to these destinations and I do think there'll be a lot of you know just that noise like when I walk past a primary school at lunchtime I'm still in a 
point in my life where I don't have children so I can escape the shrill shriek of a child and I can imagine going into that top deck and just hearing screams of children and do I want that consistently for two days I'm not sure yeah and also the other thing the final thing to throw in as well is like you know these boats you've got these like outdoor pools and slides and stuff this is Britain the weather what if you pay you know all this money for a two-day cruise and it chucks it down the whole time you've got to like see that as a perk you can't book it with the oh yeah lazing around the pool you've got to just see if we get to swim we get to swim if we don't we don't yeah absolutely but please do get in touch and let us know what you think about the Disney cruise are you planning ongoing or do you think it's just a novelty and it will be a bit of a flop I don't know let us know as we said earlier you can get in touch with us on Instagram at chat Disney or you can always send us a tweet at chat Disney UK so next week as we said we are diving into the 90s the year in which Tash and I grew up there's going to be a lot of nostalgia for us a lot of memories a lot of throwbacks I'm really looking forward to it Yes, I cannot wait for this one. We will speak to you next week. Bye for now. See you then. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.